Well, here we arrive at the first Sunday of Lent with the familiar reading of Jesus being led by the Spirit out into the desert to be tempted by Satan. However, it must be noted that Mark's version happens within the first chapter, just 17 verses into the first chapter, and um, it's only two verses long. Matthew and Luke take about 11 verses to tell the, the story, but Mark just two. Hmm. Wonder what that's about. Today's scriptures are, are splendid. The second reading is a, uh, uh, just an exquisite reflection on the first reading of Noah and the Ark. And in the first letter of Peter, some amazing things are said that help us to interpret the story of Noah and the Ark. And then we have the story itself, but we have the end of the story, or at least after the floods, and uh, God says that he sent his rainbow uh, as a statement and a covenant, a promise. I'll never do this again. I'll never destroy everybody on the planet except eight people. Whoa. So there's a lot of questions to be asked today in these scriptures. And you know me, I always raise the literal question. Did it literally happen? And I don't do this in any way to disturb anybody. Uh, if, if you just believe it happened literally, for example, there's uh, all these stories that happen every once in a while about they found the ark in the mountains of Asia somewhere, and, and they've uncovered the ark. Um, and so if that's what you believe, and I suppose really the majority of uh, Christians and Catholics believe that, but there is also the non-literal, which asks the deeper questions, I think, that that say the story may have happened, it may not have happened exactly as written, but, but there's still something the story is trying to lead us to deeper. And I bring this up always uh, because uh, there's a famous saying, you know, one of my professors used to say it in the seminary, he says, uh, when I preach on Sunday, I'm preaching to myself, and I'll let you listen in if you want. I have to preach what I believe deeply with all the core of my faith, and I know that it connects to some people that have the same questions. And I don't want to leave anybody out. So if you believe the literal, fantastic. Uh, and if you have these questions that lead you to, I say, a deeper place, then come along, okay? In any case, the truth of the story is in this deeper level, literal or not, having said all of that. How many people can say, and this I'm asking for a confession, you don't have to explain it, but just raise your hand if you want to confess this, okay? How many people can say that as a child, they heard this said to them, to you? If you say a dirty word like that again, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. How many heard that? Okay. How many actually had their mouth washed out with soap ever? Just me? Oh, you are little saints. Very good. It only takes once, one time to have your mouth washed out with soap. You won't say the words again, because it's nasty. It's nasty. Now, does it actually wash the word out? No, not literally. Does it actually clean your mouth? I don't think so. It's probably unsanitary to put soap in your mouth. But what it does do is that it makes the point and explains the purpose of the action. Uh, we all get what it means to wash the grime off 
Sometimes you'll see in a movie where a uh, play somebody has sinned and, and then they shower for an hour. And they say, I had to take a shower for a whole hour. I had to just wash that sin off it. I felt just disgusting. I had to wash the sin off. Well, you don't wash sin off. But the image is powerful, and the action of washing away dirt relates because we can see that on a physical level, also on, a, on an intellectual or emotional level, but on a spiritual level, to wash the grime away, to cleanse ourselves. So we go to the story of Noah and the ark. Now, uh, the reason I have trouble with it being literally true is, first of all, that God looked at all of his humanity and in those days, let's, let's say there, there must have been a couple thousand, there were only eight people that were good enough to save? And that God would actually wipe away all those people? Now, we know he said after the rainbow he wouldn't do it again, but why did he take Hitler? Why, didn't he let, why did he let Hitler kill millions of people? That was disgusting and evil and rotten and should have never been, but it was, it did. Well, because God doesn't do that. We are the makers of our own sin, individually and communally. We are the ones who let sin go on. If there is racism in our society, and I believe there is, is it there because we've helped stop it? Or just turn, turn away? Or participate in it? Hmm, lots of levels to the sin. Would God kill everybody? And if he did, why would he kill the animals? The animals didn't sin. They just were animals. But then it gets even worse. First of all, Noah by himself building an ark that big, uh, how many years would it take? And even if he could build it, then he'd get two of every animal, male and female, so they could propagate. What? It doesn't mention anything about food. Where's food in this story? Forty days and forty nights, does nobody eat? Do the animals not eat? Do they not eat each other? Some of them were, uh, you know, eaters of each other. And then the worst of all, and I'm sorry to bring it up, sorry, what about the poo-poo? Everybody makes poo-poo. And if forty days and forty nights, all that poo-poo, that would be a, a floating ship a floating ship of diphtheria. It just doesn't make sense. Unless God changed all the laws of nature, everything, and made everything function differently than it normally did. And then God is really poking his nose in our business. I don't get it. But what I get is that using this powerful imagery and we know what it is like to say this. You say that word again, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. And for many people, that's enough for them not to say the word again. Just the threat. But is that a good way, is that good religion, threaten people? Well, it's good religion and it's bad religion. For some people it works, and for others it makes them lose faith. Why would God do that? So this story, it's, it's good religion and bad religion. The bad religion is, is that uh, people might find themselves not believing in a God who would kill every human being except eight people. But the good religion for those that see it as good religion would be, I get it. We need to be cleansed of our sin. So we come to the deeper level. 
That's what the story's really about. Literal or not literal, in both cases, it's about God cleansing us, about God washing away our filth and our sin, about God renewing us, restoring us, giving us new life, making us new people. I refer you to our Facebook page on our website because I think I say it best there today. Uh, I, I would read it except that uh, that's gross for me to come out and read something. So uh, I just refer you to it. Now, that really isn't so much in the Facebook page except that it relates to the gospel. But before we get to the gospel, we notice that Peter, in this first letter, makes a reflection on Noah and the ark. And, and he helps us to understand what's going on. He gives like a commentary on it. And he says, he says that, you know, Christ suffered once for our sins and he's, he's fixed the unrighteous and made us righteous. He's led us to God. He's put to death in the flesh, but brought to life in the spirit, all that he wants to give to us. So then at this point, he steps back and mentions what happened with Noah. Talks about God waiting patiently for the people in the days of Noah, but they, they didn't get it. And he waited patiently for Noah to build the ark. And then it says this, in which a few persons, eight in all, were saved through the water. Then he clenches it all and makes the point. This cleansing of the whole earth, this cleansing of all of humanity and animality, whatever, animals, this prefigured baptism which saves you now. The waters that wash the earth are the waters of baptism that wash our inner spirit and soul and make us new, that unite us to God, that make us sons and daughters of God. Those waters are cleansing waters, but not of physical material filth, but of inner sinfulness to give us new life. So practically speaking, how does this relate to Lent? Oh, amazingly. I uh, was reading this week, uh, the Sisters of the Holy Names of Jesus and Mary, they're good friends of mine from my first parish and second parish, and I've made friends. Sister Sharon used to sit right over here in the front row on Saturday evenings once in a while, and, and um, they have these general chapters, which all religious have, every five years, where uh, representatives from every part of their community, in this case in Lesotho, Africa, in Peru, in Brazil, in, in um, Canada, in the United States, all over. They come with representatives, but virtually this time. So they're having their 35th chapter. And you see, this community, um, begun by Blessed Mother Rose, she uh, formed a, a teaching community. Their charism was to go teach not just educational stuff, but about God and form people of faith. And they held on to this charism for many, many years. They have, uh, they have um, schools, grammar schools and high schools and colleges and a university, and they were absolutely committed to teaching until in the 70s they started getting a lot older. A lot of them died off. They couldn't man or woman, I should say, the parish schools that they were in, so they had to start leaving schools. 
It's kind of like the BBMs left this school because they just didn't, they're all old, died. So they withdrew from this parish school, and that's what they did all over the place. But then in these general chapters, they began to say, obviously, we cannot continue teaching. We don't have enough sisters, but we still want to be a vibrant community of faith, of, of whole women of faith. So what are, we, what are we about? So they began to look at the world with their common eyes and say, what does this world need? Well, one of the things they noticed as women, they said, you know, a lot of women, boys too, but a lot of women are being used sexually in the experience of trafficking. In other words, some people, wealthy people in certain countries, get kids from other countries, 12, 13, 14 girls, and then put them into sexual uh, slavery, trafficking, and destroy their lives. And so they committed themselves to a GMO, is a GNO, uh, 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 NGO, a non-government uh, organization. There's a lot of them. And they focused their energies and their charism around uh, trying to stop trafficking, or at least let the world know that it's going on. They started uh, committing themselves to building water wells in Africa because there was such a need for water just to sustain life in Africa. And they took other steps too, mostly around justice and peace issues. So Sister Sharon and I were reflecting on the 35th general chapter notes and readings and questions that were coming out of the chapter. Oh, and I got some gems. So this person, I'm going to say his name and blow it completely. He's Nigerian, Bayo Akomafle. Bayo Akomafle. And he writes this uh, reflection about responding to life. And he says, you know, there are some crisis situations like the pandemic's a crisis. And it requires crisis response, but even more than that, it requires this. And uh, he, he noted an, an African saying from his youth, and it said this, the times are urgent, let us slow down. The times are urgent, let us slow down. And what he meant by slowing down, or the, this saying meant, was that if we just react to problems, or if we treat every challenge as a crisis, and then we just react, hurry, do something, hurry, do something, we may do the wrong thing or may not do enough. We may make it worse. So in the slowing down, the slowing down is to dig down into the roots of the issue, gather insights, gather resources, not just do something, but ask ourselves, what should we do? What can we do now, and what do we need to do later? So to slow down is to dig down and begin to really, really ask some questions. It's more about questions than answers. And like many people have said, if you don't ask the right question, you probably won't get the right answer. But if you ask the right question, you find the right questions in life, you probably are going to land on some really good answers, especially if you take the time to slow down. And that's what this Lent is about. Even though Mark does it only in two verses, the point is 
he says Jesus was led not by his own desire or whatever, but by the Spirit of God. That God led him into the desert. And then his life was stripped away. He slowed down, low, slow, slow. He wasn't talking to people. He wasn't out in the community healing or doing anything. He was just there in the desert alone, spiritually naked, not depending on anyone or anything, just on what was around him. He wasn't having meals served to him. He was eating whatever was there. He was fasting. He couldn't have possibly fasted from food and drink for 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, you have to have water. But the point is he stripped away everything because in life we can get so dependent on so many things. You know, I wake up every day and as I say my morning prayer, I, I say, thank you, God, for three things I say. Thank you for my general physical health. I got my problems, but I'm, I'm pretty healthy and I'm grateful. And I say, thank you for this house that I live in. I'm warm. I'm safe. I'm comfortable. I'm not living outside in a tent or under the river or bed or, or under the freeways. God, I'm so grateful. And then I say, thank you for this community because uh, it's, it's a real community of love and faith and kindness and generosity. So I, I really feel blessed to be here. But what about people who don't have any of that? And Jesus let the Spirit take him to that place. But that place is a very important place because we can get so comfortable. Sometimes so comfortable we don't even appreciate it anymore. At least, at least I can say I tell God I'm grateful for it every day. I hope I never get to the point where I take it for granted. And I just... I live in it and don't even think how blessed I am. But today we have Jesus, the Christ, go to the desert and accept and enter into a place of uncomfortableness, not being safe, not having anything served up to him, but just having to kind of struggle there. That's what Lent is about. And it's, it's not about giving up something so at the end of Lent we can say, oh, I was faithful to my promise. I said no more chocolate. I didn't have one piece of chocolate. Oh, that's what we did. But the giving up of chocolate for whatever that does to make us uncomfortable, what's God going to do with that? At the end of the little reflection on this 35th chapter, there was a beautiful blue picture, a figure, and then it said this. And we, we have in this parish uh, the Kairos movement, only in Spanish, but they have it in English too. And the Kairos movement, Kairos means metanoia. It means change of heart, change of life. And a Kairos retreat is very emotional. It's very challenging. And it is meant to just like rip you open to ask all the questions, who do I want to be? What am I doing with my life? Where am I going? What should I be doing? The question, more than the answer, the question is so important. So this little quote said this. It had a picture that said, a Kairos moment when your time and God's time collides. When your time and God's time collides. If you are awake, you pay attention. That's what I think this lens is about. And I'm even making this my question of the week. 
Are you and I willing to let our time collide with God's time? Or to put it maybe another way, are you willing to let God in to touch you, to shake you, to turn you upside down, inside out, to create questions you never even maybe ever thought of asking? Or will you just make a Lent where you say, well, okay, during Lent I always do the stations every Friday, and during Lent I always give up one thing, and this year it'll be broccoli. And this, whatever. Really, we're just going to do a list of things? Or are we willing... Are we willing to go into this inner spiritual space accompanied by giving up things, taking on things, doing stations, all that stuff? But, but more important than those things, to go into this inner place where we say, God, what do you want? God, collide with me. Crash. Don't do a hit and run, Lord. Don't do a hit and run. Collide with me and let us together experience this crashing in and colliding of your time and my time. And what do you want to do with it, Lord? That's the space that Lent is. That's the space where questions and answers can become profound. That's the space, I believe, where we'll find God and find ourselves.